tonight is Phyllis. My name is Phyllis, and I am a chunky, drunky, junkie. Hi, Phyllis. I have been clean, sober, and abstinent since May 20th, 1972. Some of you weren't even born then. <laughs> um, it, it, it's interesting the way I'm, I'm feeling right now. I was up at the birthday party, and uh, and I'm so stoked from that, but I'm so exhausted from from the pressure, you know, and everything that that we do up there and seeing all, all the people. But it it's such an exciting experience to be reminded of how it was, what we did. And how it is now, and you know, and I hear other people doing that and and talking about that. And frankly, for me, sometimes it's difficult to remember how it was. Uh, it must have been pretty awful because I weighed 235 pounds, and I uh, I was on uh, drugs. I started on drugs when I was about 11, and that came as a result of my mother taking me to the local doctor, who gave me some pills to take before I would eat, and if the doctor said take one, I took two or three, you know, with better living through chemistry, and uh, I had continued on that drug habit for 27 years. I uh, graduated into bigger and better drugs, and uh, I, I I was a very fortunate drug user, or unfortunate. You know, it depends on where you're standing. Uh, my brother-in-law was a drug, a pharmaceutical supply salesman, and he had all the wonders of the world in the trunk of his car. And uh, I, I got everything that I ever needed. You know, if I said to my can't sleep, he gave me stuff to sleep. If I said I need something to uh, take away my appetite, he would give me something for that. And it, it was no matter to me. Uh, about mixing them, and uh, I did overdose once on drugs and alcohol, and at that time, I was not sure why God saved me, why I didn't die. Uh, And the reason that I believe I didn't die is so that I could do this. Um, That was when I, I already had three children, and they were sleeping in the other room, and I had overdosed uh, at, at a function that my husband and I had gone to, and I had to be carried home. In any event, um, I'm the oldest of two children, but I always say my brother was an only child. Uh, he had this terrible disease for many years where he could not retain any food and he was emaciated, and he was skinny, and everybody fussed over him and tried to fix him and make him better. And uh, when he was about six, they discovered what it was, and he had certain allergies that they just were not aware of. Orange juice, milk, and red meat. And once they found out what the allergies were, my brother got better, but people would still fawning over him. And then my brother grew up to be six foot 
four and weigh 375 pounds, but we don't have a problem in our family, right? <laughs> um, the, the, um, and, and I came from a family that was, they did the best they could. And it took me a lot of years in program to, to get to understand that, to feel that. For many years, I, I wanted to go blame them, you know. And I heard so many people today at the, at the uh, birthday party say the same thing, that you think that we all lived in the same house. Mm-hmm. Um, they did the best they could. wasn't good enough. <laughs> uh, food was very important in our house. Food was used as reward and as punishment. Go figure that. You know, I, it, it, it amazes me that, that we could do both of those things with food. And everything, if you felt bad, you know, you, you ate. If, you felt, if something good happened, of course you celebrated and you ate. And you always ate the same thing, cake and ice cream. And I developed a very fun taste for those things. Uh, my parents were not heavy people, but I do come from a family uh, where we do have compulsive, obsessive people, uh, all kinds of things. I found out very late in my life that my favorite grandpa was an alcoholic. I was devastated, but of course it, it made me feel much better about my own disease because at least I knew where I came from. My parents were not. Uh, I come from a family of gamblers. I come from a family of compulsive eaters. Uh, and I grew up hearing, that's okay, you're a big girl. Mm. I was this tall, well, I was a little taller, you know. (laughs) Go figure that I'm going to get shorter as I get older instead of taller. Uh, And I always used to say I'd have to be seven feet tall to carry the weight. Uh, The the, uh, family would say, all the women in the family are, are built that way. They all have that. They're all big women. I have teeny tiny little wrists and my ankles are very thin. How my legs carried me around on 235 pounds, I don't know. But my knees are not in great shape now. Um, and, and my family, uh, we, we were very poor, but there was always food to eat, no matter what it was. And I remember telling my mother when I was about 19, I went 19, no, I was about 17, I went to a summer resort with some of my friends, and they introduced me to tuna fish. I had never eaten tuna fish, because my mother said tuna fish was for the poor people. You know, and I said, where did we sit in there? Uh, Strange family, though. Um, I had difficulty with them, and uh, many people have heard me say, I grew up feeling, uh, knowing that are fat, ugly, lazy, and stupid. Uh, I don't think at that time I was any of those things. Uh, I certainly was not a good judge of whether I was ugly or fat, because I always thought I was fat, because everybody said so. And sometimes I look at pictures now from teenage years, and it wasn't it wasn't as bad as I thought it was, and it. I looked at the pictures and I said, you couldn't possibly have hurt as much as you did and looked like that. It was not that bad. And uh, it was a constant, a constant battle. You know, it's Monday morning, going to diet, this, this time I'm going to do it. And I did. 
I did. I was successful on a lot of diets for a short period of time. They never worked long term. And I, I remember when I was in, in high school, I would sit over with, with other people because I didn't want to be with the people who ate because all I would have for lunch was a container of milk and a cookie. You know, I didn't want them to see that that was all that I was eating. And then I'd go home and I'd eat more. I'd eat again and again. And I'm a constant, I was a constant grazer. In, in the early years. Uh, I, I uh, changed that somewhat as I got older and would have it, instead of all day, it would just be in three-hour patterns, you know, and then it was time to go to sleep. Um, when I was 18 years old, I met the man that I decided I was going to marry. And we did indeed get married uh, three years later. Uh, I was told that I would never have any children by um, the big doctor in the town where I lived, in New York, in case you haven't figured out the accent. Um, and um, I then became pregnant six times in five years. And I, that, that was, I should have had a clue that you never tell a compulsive, obsessive, addictive person that they can't do something. <laughs> And uh, I have three, three sons. If my sons were born today in our society, they would have been taken away from me because my first son was born addicted. The second and third were born with uh, difficulty with their legs, and eventually it, it, uh, it was taken care of. But uh, they, were all, they were drunk and stoned when they were born. And uh, I, there was a time I was very ashamed of that. And it, uh, it really is, it was very discomforting to me. And now <clears throat> I'm happy to be able to say it because through the programs, and I'm, I'm active in AA and OA, uh, through the programs I, I've been able to change that person. I am not that person anymore. I'm not the fat, ugly, lazy, stupid person anymore either. Um, but I digress. I, let me try to get it in order here if I can. When I got married, the story was that I went on a diet to the wedding, as most of us do, and as I was walking down the aisle, I was gaining weight. <laughs> I mean, that's just, just the way I, you know, I was breathing. And... Uh, that's, that's exactly what happened when I got married. I had my own little kitchen and my own little stove and refrigerator and a shopping cart to take to the supermarket and I could cook and make anything I wanted. And I became a really, really good cook because I loved to eat and so did my husband. My husband was, unfortunately for me, one of those people that we call a truth-in he could eat anything he wanted in any quantity, and nothing ever changed his weight. He weighed 164 pounds for 14 years, almost 14 years that we were married. I, on the other hand, came home from my uh, honeymoon uh, about 15 pounds heavier than when I went, and just climbed up the ladder beautifully from that. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, when I, when I first became pregnant, nobody was able to tell that I was pregnant because I was so fat. Uh, but by the time I, I had my third child, I was wearing maternity clothes 15 minutes after I found out that I was pregnant. Um, I gained enormous amounts of weight during those periods of time, and I was warned not to do that. And I believe it was with my first son, uh, I was confined to bed for a while because I had some kind of poisoning or something that I can't remember what, it, what it's called. Thank you. But then again, I can't remember a lot of things anymore, only now I blame it on my age. Um, and uh, I, I just ate myself into a point at which I overdosed. And I continued, even after that, taking the drugs that I was taking and eating the way I ate. It was not a warning signal to me. You know, all the promises that I made to God that night, I didn't keep. I promise I'll be a good mother. I promise I'll be a good wife. I promise I'll do this, that, and the other thing. And I didn't do it. I went back to being what my kids used to say, Mom stood for mean old mother. That's not a pleasant way to deal with life on a daily basis. Uh, I was a rageaholic. I abused my children. I... Uh, I could go into a terrible rage about socks being left on the floor. And that doesn't happen with kids. You don't live that way. That's what they do. Only I couldn't accept any of it. And my kids once told me that I'm not the kind of perfectionist I thought I was. They said, you're only a perfectionist for what you ask us to do. You're not a perfectionist for what you do. Mm -hmm. I wanted to kill them. Mm -hmm. uh, I, very intuitive and insightful, I think, on their part. And they were fully aware, I do believe, of a lot that was going on with me. They used to talk about my crazy pink lemonade. And they used to talk about my uh, blue pills and the pink pills and the, you know, the other things that were up on the shelf in the kitchen. And uh, I was in the bedroom sleeping a lot with the door closed. And I had, I remember one incident, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, so, I moved to the suburbs and I became a stay-at-home suburban wife. And I hated it. I really didn't like it. Uh, I didn't like any of the jobs that I had, and I kept thinking, this is not what I applied for. <laughs> you know, this is not what I want to do. And uh, in spite of it, uh, I don't know how we made it. I really don't. And it doesn't make any difference now anyway. Um, in 1965, my husband had a nervous breakdown and in 1966, he was killed at the railroad station where we lived out on Long Island. And I was left with six, eight, and ten-year-old, who I didn't like too much, and uh, no money. And I was shattered. I was scared. I was angry. I was angry at my parents because my husband died. And... I, 
I carried on in a manner definitely unbecoming a lady, but I didn't think I was that either at that particular time. I would go, I would go home from work and feed my kids and then go out and stay out till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and then go home, get up at 7 and go to work. And it always amazed me that I never got fired from a job. I don't know how I fooled them, but I did. And what it, where it did show itself was in um, my eight, what I call my 18-month cycles. I would get a job, and I'd be very good at it, and they would love me, and I'd stay there for 18 months. And after about maybe 16 months or so, I'd start to say, what a bunch of idiots they are. And why don't they do this? And why don't they do that? And I'd get out. And I'd move on to another job. And it would be the same, same process all over again. I always had good jobs. I really did. I was amazed. I fooled them. I really did fool them. Because deep down inside, I found out subsequently in the program, is a very frightened person. A frightened, well, you know, I'm not one of those people who believes about the child within. Because the child within is me. You know? And, and she's scared because I'm her mother. You know? <laughs> but I, um, I would just go from one job to another. And, and the one job that I had that was really a great job, uh, we had a function on St. Patty's Day. It was exactly a year after my husband died. And uh, I don't know about you, but the lime sherbet that they put in champagne is really very good. And I drank lots of champagne with lime sherbet in it that day. And, of course, I had to be taken home. They had to take me and put me to bed. I'm sure I threw up on somebody somewhere uh, that they didn't want to tell me about. But the most important thing that happened... That night, the two youngest kids, who were now uh, maybe seven and nine, slept outside the bedroom door. They laid on the floor and slept there all night because they were afraid that I was going to die during the night. I don't know whether they knew that I was drunk. They knew that I was, you know, pretty sick. And uh, warning signal, you know, red light, nothing. Didn't mean a thing. Got up, showered in the morning, got dressed, you know, fixed myself up, and went back to work. Nobody said anything to me. I thought I was going to lose my job, but I didn't. I made it again. You know, and, and those kind of things, when, when that begins to happen, it's like sometimes I used to pray for something to happen, and then if it happened, I thought I had the power, you know, I had direct contact with God. And when I, when I would not lose the job, you know, I made it. This is it. I can do this the rest of my life. And I did. And I got myself involved with a lot of people that if I were sane, sober, and unstoned, I would never allow myself to be in their company. And uh, I did that for about three years. And uh, it, it was, that was really a tough time for all of us. My kids didn't get what they needed from me because, number one, I didn't know how to give it. 
and number two, I never was around to, to do that. Uh, I would get calls at work where they would say, John, hit me, you know, and what should I do? What would you like me to do? You know, you're there. You have to solve it yourself. As a result, my sons became uh, very adept at getting along with each other. But even better than that, I, I knew that they would grow up to be great wives because they used to cook and clean. And, you know, they, they did all the things that I did not do. Uh, in 1970, I, uh, I met a man at a social function that I went to and we started dating and he had this great idea with his therapist. They were going to go into the business of an organization just like Alcoholics Anonymous for people who had difficulty with food. And it sounded wonderful. They worked out all this stuff and how they were going to make lots of money and one day I'm reading the newspaper and I see uh, an announcement of the meeting at a local church, a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. And uh, I showed it to him and I said, I think you should really go to this meeting. At this point, we too, I, I, had, I was thin when my husband died, and the thing that my father said to me at that point, which I will never forget, is he said, you look gaunt. He said, Nobody ever said that to me in my whole life, and nobody has said it since either. So, uh, but um, I sent him. We were both gaining weight together. I remember the first time he came to my house to take me out. He brought this enormous pie. Second time he came to take me out, he brought a, a box full of Chinese food that would have felt would have fed a small army. And my kids and he and I finished it all off. Um, so I was back up, you know, gaining weight. And he goes to the meeting, and he comes home, and he said, you're never going to believe about this meeting that I went to. It was held in a church, and there were eight fat ladies and him. And he tells me they hold hands, and they say prayers, and there's a lot of hugging, and I said, you are not going to those meetings without me. Up here I am. I want to know what's going on. And so I started to go to the meetings with him. And the way I always tell the story, there wasn't one person in the room who was not loosely wrapped. They were all stark, raving mad, I thought. They're talking about, call me up if you feel like eating, or read the book. What kind of nonsense is that? And then I walked in and I saw these window shades. And I said, uh-oh, I'm in the wrong place. This is, this is not what I need. Uh, I don't need religion. I don't need people to call me. I don't need to call somebody and tell them what I'm going to eat, which I thought was so childish. And then I found out that if I get a sponsor, she's going to give me homework. I said, I beg your pardon. She said, yes, you're going to do some, some writing and reading. I said, I don't have time for that. She said, okay. Then she said, you're going to make three telephone calls a day. And I said, I don't have time for that. And she said, you're going to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And blah, blah, blah. You know, I said, kept saying the same thing. And uh, 
I ended up doing 120 meetings in 90 days, and I did make telephone calls, and I'd get on the phone and say, uh, my sponsor told me to call. And it's amazing, because even for me, like, I get calls like that now from people, and so you start to talk about what meetings do you go to, uh, what part of the book are you reading, what step are you working or not working, and therein lies the basis of a beautiful relationship based on that terrible word called honesty. And I didn't know how to be honest. I really didn't. I'm a, a liar and a cheat, and I, you know, I call myself a bottom feeder. And uh, I did not know how to be honest with anyone. Uh, I might tell you a little bit, and I might tell you a little bit, and then pray that the two of you never get together, because if you do, you're going to talk about me. And uh, I just didn't want people to know, because deep down on some level, I knew that I was flawed. And it's like thinking, and not knowing that I have a disease, I have a sickness, and I'm not going to get better from it. There's no way I can get better because I tried doctors and they couldn't do it. I tried therapy and they couldn't do it. And I said, I'm going to have to battle this thing all of my life. And that was really a kick in the head. Um, that was very, very scary. So I choose this woman to be my sponsor because they told me I had to get one. And she was the most unlike me that I chose. She was, what I always said, a loud mouth, even though we were both from New York. She was louder than I. And she had dyed red hair and wore very loud clothes. And I'm, you know, I've always been like this, very conservative. You know, if I stand against the wall, you can't see me. You might hear me, but you can't see me. And uh, because, and the reason I did choose her, because I saw the change that was happening to her because she was working the program. And, you know, it's like when people say, find someone who has what you want and then go get it. That's what I did. Don't ask me where I got the, the guts to do that. But I wanted to understand the program. I wanted to be able to work the program. I wanted to be able to integrate it into my life. And I so wanted to be thinner. And lo and behold, what happened is that they helped me get off drugs. There was no N.A. around at that particular time, certainly not in the area that we lived in. And after I was off drugs for six weeks and feeling, you know, pretty cocky about what I had accomplished, I said, I'll do you dumb gray sheet. You know, uh, I'll go on your food plan. I'll do you the favor of going on, your, on, on the food plan. And uh, I went on the food plan, and for the first time in my life, I lost weight without chemicals. I discovered how alcoholic I was. I discovered how drug-dependent I was. I discovered this, this monster that was in me that was so controlled by food. I never, ever thought that. 
I mean, you know, all I have to do is just push myself away from the table, right? And uh, I, the other good thing that I did find out, that it was not a moral issue, that it is a disease, that it's a disease for which there is no cure, but it is a disease from which there can be recovery. But it's a constant exposure to the prescription for recovery if you want to keep it. You can't, you know, pick it up, do it, and then just go out there. And, and we all know people who have, have done that. Uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I need to be in the company of program people. I need to be in the company of program people not only for my sanity, but as a, an adjunct to my spiritual program. Because nobody out there talks about spirituality. I mean, we didn't go to lunch every day from work and drink our martinis and talk about God. We talked about the negative side of life. You know, and I, I said this morning, too, that I'm a very graphic person. I have to see it. I have to feel it. You know, I, I want to know what, it, what it's like. And I want, I want to know where the feet are growing from. And uh, it was the most miraculous thing that had ever, ever happened to me. I can't tell you when it happened. I can't tell you, well, how it happened is how it works. You know, as simple as that. But what, what emerged from this hodgepodge was the beginning of a person. Now, I also mentioned this this morning when we were talking at one of the meetings that uh, I didn't know who I was. And as I was a therapist for many years, and people would come into my office and they would say, I don't know who I am. I want to find out who I am. I said, okay, tell me who you're not. <laughs> you know, and, and let's talk about that. And then you'd be surprised from talking about that. You begin to find out who you really are, what you'd like to do, what I want to be when I grow up, uh, what I like. You know, I did not know what I liked because if you wanted me to like this, I like that. You wanted me to like something else, I like that. I had no original thoughts. And as a result of that, you, you end up being pretty shallow and people have a tendency to avoid you because there is absolutely, you know, I'm an 8 by 10 glossy. That's about, you know, what it amounts to. And I, I began to work on this program and I began to find out, for example, that I lied. I mean, that was a survival tactic. That was one of the things that I had to do to survive in my childhood and growing up. I uh, I didn't always tell big lies. Sometimes they were just little lies. Uh, I didn't want people to know where I came from or who I was. And uh, I, I found out that I had choices. Can you imagine? I come as a program. I'm 40 years old. And somebody tells me I have a choice. Why didn't you tell me that when I was 20? Because I wouldn't have listened to you if you told me when I was 20. If I had walked into an AA or an OA meeting when I was 20, I would have walked right out again. Because I was smarter than everybody else in the room. And I was much too sophisticated for this childish 
nonsense that they do. These cliches that they toss about at the meeting. Let go, let God. Live and let live. Turn it over. Ridiculous. You know, that's so basic. Any moron would know how to do that. Excuse me? And I, I began to feel this psychic change from the the, the evolution that was going on, you know, from, from the changes that were happening to me physically and emotionally and spiritually. And again, if you ask me to describe it, I can't. It's just a feeling of calm that settles in when you're trying to make a decision, let's say, and you're not sure about what you want to do. So you think about it yourself for a while, and then maybe you bounce it off a sponsor or a good friend in the program, and then finally, you know, last resort, you turn it over to God. And my feeling used to be, he's much too busy to take care of me and see what I eat for lunch. God is out there taking care of people's real estate and parking spaces, you know. And, and, and he, he really doesn't care what I eat for lunch. And I have to tell you today, my God does care what I eat for lunch. My God cares about everything that I do. Because I did have to find a new God. I had to find a new higher power. I grew up as a kid that would say prayers at night by rote. You know, I really wasn't even aware of what I'm saying. God bless mommy, God bless daddy, God bless my brother who I hated, and God bless, you know, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes, you know, when I would pray for things, as I mentioned before, if they happened, I felt all-powerful. I felt omnipotent. There wasn't anything I couldn't do because I said so. And in finding out my strengths, I also found out my weaknesses. And at first, you know, I wanted to go, oh, who needed this? Why would I want to find out what my weaknesses are? I'm 40 years old, and I have no time for weakness. And as a result of, of going into the steps and, and looking at my character defects and, and practicing the principles, my character defects got smaller. And the, the good, the good Phyllis, the good witch, came out, you know, and, and the, the, um, there was, there was a tremendous change. Now, how do I know there was a tremendous change? I didn't know that by myself. I just knew it from the reaction that I was getting from other people. My kids would say, you're different. You changed. And they say, what did you do? Well, the only thing I had done was joined OA and AA at that particular time. And I didn't think that made such a big difference in who I was, except my family was very upset when they found out that I went to AA and that I was admitting that I was an alcoholic. And my mother's favorite argument was, you can't be an alcoholic, you're Jewish. <laughs> Compulsive eaters, they could accept. That they could accept. But, you know, I began to think that it was much more um, glamorous to be an alcoholic and a drug addict than to be a food addict, you know, than to be a compulsive eater. And I call myself a compulsive eater because I could be a compulsive eater eating less 
I could be a compulsive eater eating more, and I could be a compulsive eater eating rapidly. And I try, I, I, I do not do those things today. So my family then would have disowned me, except that I really didn't want that to happen. And they didn't support my ridiculous habits. They didn't, my, my habits now being going for recovery, because the entire function changes when one person in the family starts to get better. People don't like that. They want to have it the old way so that they can blame and that they can take over, which they do when you have one sick person in the family. And it, it really set the family on its ear for a while. Uh, getting back to the, uh, the guy who went to the meetings, <laughs> uh, 1970, 1973. We, we came into, I came to the program in 1971, and I sat in the back of the room, and I didn't do it, and I couldn't stand it, and I hated the people, and blah, 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 blah. And I didn't become abstinent until May 20th, 1972. And the, the guy, around the same time, he became, he lost 100 pounds in six months. I lost 85 in about six months. And you've got to be willing to give up the food. That's the only way to do it, if that's what you want. You know? And even today, you know, I say to people, you have to be willing to do it. There are a lot of people who don't want to do it. They don't want to give it up. Go do some more research, you know. But you have to be willing to give up the food. So we both gave up the food, and look what happened to us. And in 1973, we waited a year, and we got married. We were married 16 years, I think. And after about, well, and then we moved, we moved out here after five years in program. Uh, moved to San Diego. And... Uh, I was not welcome with open arms to OA in San Diego. Uh, I was called a food Nazi. Fortunately, my sponsor preceded me, so she got the bulk of, of all the dirty looks and dirty words. But we were too rigid for them because OA at that time was very lax, would you call it that, was very friendly life, you could do whatever you wanted, you know, and it doesn't work too well that way. Uh, I think, you know, I'm a person who needs guidance. I need structure. That works for me. Anyway, they finally accepted me, and uh, my husband would say things to me like, you're going out to another meeting? And I'd say yes. And he'd say, why don't you stop these damn phone calls? It's enough already. And I didn't get the clue. I really didn't get it until a long time after that. He, w he went back into the disease. And um, I got married in the program. I then got divorced in the program. Um, it, was, it, it became too obvious to me that I did not belong in that place, and I had to get myself out. Uh, and I was one of those people who said, I'm never going to be divorced, and my kids won't know that, and my parents, blah, blah, blah. So I, got, I divorced him. And uh, he's still around town. He's enormous. 
you know, I don't see him. I don't see him at all, actually, and we never talk. So it's like that part of my life never existed. I took my great big giant eraser, and I just got rid of the whole thing. And I knew that the minute that I would leave that relationship, I would flourish. I knew that that would happen, and it did. And I had the opportunity at that time to enter into a new career, and uh, it's in the helping profession. And it was amazing to me because my days were filled with program. And so fast. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, my life changed considerably. Ninety-four, thirteen years ago, uh, I put an ad in the newspaper in the possibilities section, and this gentleman answered my ad, and we started to talk. And he, we grew up a mile and a half away from each other in New York City, but of course didn't know each other, and we started dating. And I finally got it right. I finally got it right. I have. The, the soulmate that I, you know, that you dream about. He's not gorgeous looking, and he's retired, you know, so he's not some high type job thing. And he makes me laugh, and that is the most exciting part of of our relationship. Uh, my children are grown up and spread out. I have one son lives in Europe, one son lives uh, up around this area, and one son lives in Denver. And uh, they have their own lives. They do what they have to do. This is the best time ever for me. It really is the best time of my life. I have much more than I need. And I, I want for nothing. I even have enough food to eat. Would you believe that? I never say I'm hungry. I very rarely say <coughs> I'm angry. And I never say that I'm lonely. However, old age is creeping up on me and I do get tired. I'm probably going to sleep all the way home (laughs) in the car. But this is the best time of my life. And it's a time that I never, ever could have enjoyed if it were not for OA. Because this is where I started. I was part of the Westminster group that wrote the 30 assignments that are used a lot in, in the program, and uh, it was it was just a great time. It was like being with the fever and the fervor of excitement, life-changing excitement, and I love it. I love it. So uh, the reason I didn't die was because I had to be here. So thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs>